0: What's going on in the depiction of science in the present coronavirus pandemic? And how does theology play into this? How does our language, political, scientific, and theological, shape how we understand the world? Are there examples of science and faith coming together to provide hope for our creation? And what does listening to the science and walking by faith look like in this season? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cramer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host Philip Fleming and in today's show I'll be talking to Professor David Wilkinson. David is principal of St John's College Durham, has PhDs in both astrophysics and theology and is an ordained Methodist minister. And our question today is, how does science and faith help us live in a coronavirus world? Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. David Wilkinson, welcome to Talking Theology.
1: Thank you, Philip. Nice to be here.
0: David, you've appeared on Talking Theology before. We know a little bit about your story, about your life as both a scientist and as a theologian. I know recently you've been bringing those two together in the continuation of a very exciting project based at St. John's College. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: It's called Equipping Christian Leaders in the Age of Science, and it came out of some thinking that I did with the then pro-vice-chancellor at Durham University, now professor at York University, Tom McLeish, a physicist and a lay Anglican. And we talked about really that when many senior church leaders, by which I mean bishops or those equivalent in other denominations, or those who lead national or international parachurch movements, when they often are confronted by the questions or challenges of science, they're either silent or they're either befuddled or more likely they're fearful of the question. And we felt that that often has a ripple down effect upon the clergy or the other Christian leaders that they lead on folk within local churches who may be scientists themselves, as if the church is worried about science, doesn't affirm science, feels that it's a threat or a conflict, and then that ripples out into the general culture where we know there's a conflict model between science and religion. And so we began a little bit of work, which has blossomed, on how we equip Christian leaders in an age of science. E-Class is the name of the project. And we're doing a number of things about trying to give confidence and joy, a sense that you don't have to worry about engaging science, but actually to see science as a gift from God, something that not only can help us transform our society under God's guidance and stewardship and principles of love, but also something that will actually help us in our relationship with God. And therefore, the project is primarily targeted at those senior leaders in the church to try and support them and give them the resources that they need for the public role that they have when they encounter science.
0: Now, I know as part of that work, you've been reflecting quite a bit already within the coronavirus pandemic that we're living through at the moment about that relationship between science and faith. I wonder if we can go back and just start with a little bit of analysis from you about the sort of narrative that science is getting. We hear lots of language in the political daily briefings about how we'll be led by the science, as if the science was a capital S and a unitary voice, really. What are your reflections about the narrative of science in this present phase that we're living through?
1: I think uh, there's a number of things which are really interesting here, Philip. You've picked on one which is very important, and that is our understanding of what science itself is. And behind the headline of we're going to be led by science, you quickly begin to discover that actually you need quite a bit of scientific literacy to understand what's being said. How do you interpret the statistics of the numbers of deaths? How do you assess the optimism or pessimism about the possibility of vaccines? How does scientific advice interact with government decisions? Because we see all around the world different governments taking different views on this. And often we've built up science as something which is separate from scientists. What the government are actually doing is talking rightly to experts in the field individual scientists who have sometimes disagreement between themselves, but then broad agreement about certain things. And science is like that. It proceeds as a dialogue. It proceeds by asking questions, first and foremost, rather than giving neat answers. And how church leaders themselves then respond, just like government, to the science is really important. And that, I think, is about a lack of scientific literacy Within our society. And many, many years ago, C.P. Snow talked about the two cultures within British culture. And what he meant by that was that many people feel that they have some literacy in the arts, the works of Shakespeare, for example, but very few people know what the second law of thermodynamics is. And Philip, I'm not going to test you on it now, but the sense of how do we understand science and the nature of science that's the first narrative that I think is really interesting. The second narrative when it comes to science is something that our York team, particularly because we have a team based in York University, and they've discovered through mining of media and social media and government announcements, the prevalence of a warfare mentality or a warfare model between the work of government and the work of science and nature itself. And what I mean by that is particularly some of our political leaders talking about we're at war with this virus. We're in a battle. And, of course, this was overlaid by VE Day and how we were giving thanks for the work of the NHS, but the language of warfare, of heroes, of self-sacrifice, was very strong. Now, there's a number of problems with this, of course. One is that we actually put human beings and nature in a battle, a good against evil battle, and actually, that narrative means that someone has to triumph over the other. And while that may be helpful at the moment in terms of motivating public action and public behavior, it may leave a lasting legacy of the sense that human beings are greater, better than, over the environment. And of course, that's where some of our abuse of the environment has come from in the past, where we have felt arrogantly as human beings that this is all for us. But I think also it's led to this sense of almost in the same way that you would use a war mentality to unite the nation, you also start to impose issues of sacrifice upon people who you push over the trenches. And so it has a a knock-on effect to the way that you recommend people going back to work, for example, or not providing enough protective equipment for those working in the NHS, you almost hide behind some of these metaphors and narratives. And so those are the two things uh, that have been uncovered as we've worked on this in the last few weeks.
0: Let's explore those two, David, from a theological perspective. First of all, the question of scientific literacy. I take what you say about C.P. Snow articulating the two cultures problem. And I guess theology has often regarded itself as within the arts dynamic. What are the resources that might enable us to see theology as something which bridges those two cultures rather than just being in one culture? I guess that's part of the solution, isn't it?
1: It is, Philip. And theologically, this is a really important question. And within Christian faith, of course, it's your understanding of the Trinity that becomes really important. And whether you see God as the creator of the whole universe, so Christians don't believe in a dualism, between things of the spirit, which are good, and things of the physical, which are bad, the legacy that the Greeks left us with, Christians believe that God is the God of the land, the earth, the physical, the stuff of life. And that was demonstrated for us in the incarnation, where God became a human being in Jesus, became flesh, and lived amongst us. And also in a doctrine of the spirit, which often Christians haven't been terribly good at, to say that The Holy Spirit is at work not just in the church and within the Christian community, but actually the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, in the whole of creation. Now, that's a theological bridge which says that when we come to think about the world, the very stuff of creation, the time, space, and matter is important to God. That's the first thing. The second is this sense that God gives gifts within his gift of being made in the image of God. Now, the image of God would take about 15 different Talking Theology podcasts to fully explore, but there is a sense in which when you talk about human beings made in the image of God, you get a sense that, first of all, this is about relationship. We are in relationship with the God who walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. There's an intimacy of relationship. But there's also this this sense of stewardship, of care. Now, sometimes Christians have misinterpreted this in terms of dominating nature. In fact, the biblical model in Genesis is about the caring and the working of the physical creation. It's not about putting ourselves and simply stripping the resources of the creation. And then the third thing is something about creativity and to be made in the image of the God of Genesis 1 is to have something of the creativity of God. Now, of course, the care and keeping and the working of the physical and the ability to be creative is at the heart of what scientists do. Scientists work with the physical creation to understand it, hopefully to care for it, look after it, and to work it for the benefit not just of human beings, but for the benefit of all. And science is always a creative Process. So for me, that's what I mean by science being a gift from God, because it's part of the gifts of creation and what it means to be human. But also, that's a gift that isn't given individually. This was another problem of the Greeks and sometimes the legacy of Western Christianity to see that we are in the image of God as individuals. In fact, we're not. We're only in the image of God as a community. And therefore, to do science is to be part of a community. That picture of the lone scientist, which has often come out actually during this period of lockdown. So you've got lots of stories about Isaac Newton, who didn't do all of his work, it's said, until he was forced from Cambridge because of the plague and had to go back to the garden where he was hit by an apple and all of this sort of stuff. And so people have often been writing blog posts about, oh, well, when we're in lockdown, it's good that we're alone because that's where creativity comes from. I don't believe that about Newton at all. A lot of Newton's thought was already formed before he started to think about it in his garden at home. And science ultimately, with a few exceptions, is a corporate activity. It's about learning together, challenging together, And therefore, I think science and God's sense that human beings find themselves in community is really important for that. Now, at a practical level, if that's a theological level, I think one of the things that we've been learning over the past few years within our E-Class project is that one of the great resources for the church in this to bridge those two culture divides are those folk who are trained in science, who are already in the church. So these may be church leaders who've actually had a scientific background. And the question there for principals of theological colleges like yourself is how do we shape theological training to utilise the gifts that people have already with scientific training? I think it also means how do we affirm people within local churches, scientists, science teachers, engineers, technologists, Folk who work in university science departments, those folk doing GCSE or A-levels in science, when they are part of the Christian church, do they feel that they're doing something for Christ? Do we communicate and say thank you to them for their vocation as scientists? And I think they can become those incarnational models of what it means that this is the whole of God's world, rather than just the world and the church being in separate areas.
0: David, you mentioned earlier the second major theme that you've identified about the narrative of science in the pandemic, which was the human being versus nature narrative, which implies the language of triumph, but also sacrifice. What's your reflections about the way in which there's some kind of underlying theology in there. I'm I'm conscious that the language of conflict between human being and the world is somehow seen, that battle language is somehow seen in theology as well. What are your reflections about how a theological worldview can correct that, but perhaps how it's even contributed to it?
1: I think it's both. It's contributed to it at times, and it can correct it. In the 1960s, the American historian Lynn White pointed out that Much of the abuse of our environment came from an incorrect reading of the early chapters of Genesis, which formed the basis of a great deal of Western culture. And he argued that putting human beings above nature through the incorrect interpretation of dominion, domination, meant that we could do with nature as we wished. We could strip it for its resources because we were different to the rest of nature. And the whole of nature was for us, so the incorrect reading would go. This is widely quoted by those within the Christian faith and outside the Christian faith as something that the Christian faith got wrong. But White actually goes on and says that if the cause is religious, so must be the solution, that actually we need to read again and understand the place of human beings within nature. I think I'd want to go further than that and say that actually we have to understand much better the nature of the created world. Now, let's take one or two examples of this, if we may. It's very easy to look at the COVID-19 virus and to use the language that it is evil. Indeed, the way you present images of the COVID-19 virus We have a family we were talking to the other day, and one of the children actually had nightmares about large COVID virus as monsters. The problem with that is that we've got to be careful about characterizing nature in that way. To the biologist and a dear mentor and friend of mine, many years ago, Oliver Barclay, who founded the Research Scientist Christian Fellowship. Once explained this to me and said that for a biologist, a virus actually can be very beautiful. It's when the virus is in the wrong context, in the wrong place, that it becomes destructive. So the language of good and evil, and particularly calling viruses or diseases evil, sets up this battle warfare mentality. We're good, nature is evil. And it's very easy for that to ripple out into the way that we begin to see the natural world. Donald Mackay, who was a pioneering neuroscientist, worked on the brain at Keele University, a committed Christian, talked about this often when he said that the biblical model is not of human beings going out into a jungle where there is threat behind every tree and behind every leaf. Mackay said that the biblical image is of human beings going into their family garden. There are threats. There are things that will sting you. There are things that you've got to be careful about. But actually, it's a positive image of enjoyment and playfulness as well as caution and reserve within that So I think how we begin to understand nature, and this came home to me just a couple of weeks ago, I'd been doing a little bit of reading about Edward Jenner and vaccinations against smallpox. You know that smallpox is now outside of the human population. There's a couple of labs who still have samples of it. But Jenner was one of the pioneering doctors. He was a doctor in Gloucestershire, and he was one of the first people to vaccinate with cowpox, which is a form of a disease that often milkmaids would get on their hands. And there was an old wife's tale at the time, which was that if you had a cowpox sore on your hand from milking the cows, you wouldn't get smallpox. And most doctors kind of said this is a load of rubbish. But Jenna said, hold on a moment, what these women are talking about is something really important. And over 30 years, he did work on Cowpox, and then took the risk of vaccinating a number of people with cowpox in order to vaccinate them against smallpox. And what's really interesting about Jenner is that he was a Christian and he loved nature, and he often talked about his delight and his love of nature. And I keep thinking to myself, here's this guy dealing with smallpox, really terrible disease. 30 years of painstaking work against this disease. And yet he still speaks about the benevolence and the love and the delight that he feels within his father's creation. Now, I think Jenner would talk about images of healing rather than warfare. And Francis Bacon, one of the key people in the development of science, often said that science was given by God to heal as part of God's healing of creation. And I think actually that's a much more helpful metaphor than this sense of battling against nature.
0: So if that's the case, David, what might be the redeemed narrative that theologians might offer which replaces this sort of human being versus nature? How might triumph look differently? How might sacrifice look rather different in that context if we're going to go for this healing rather than warfare model?
1: Let's just disentangle for a moment that warfare as a metaphor has some political value to it. So, if you want to get a nation together in a common cause, then that sense of warfare has some merit in it. But if you embed that metaphor into a battle between good and evil, then actually that's where it becomes dangerous. So, using Small metaphors is fine, but the bigger narrative is the thing that's really key in this. Now, the Christian narrative, understanding nature, is that creation is good, but it's not fully perfect. This is the sense of holding together the biblical understanding from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis 1, God said it was good, but... It's not yet perfect. It's not finished. And that's why you have in Revelation and throughout the emergence, particularly of the New Testament, a sense of God's purposes are towards a new creation, a healed creation, not just of going to heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth, a transformed creation. And the pictures in Revelation are pictures where there will be no more death or tears or suffering. And in between, Genesis and Revelation, you get some of these images, for instance, in Romans 8, where you have a sense that the whole creation is groaning or longing towards that which is to come. Now, of course, as you know, I'm a Methodist, and therefore I'm under contract in every podcast to mention the name of John Wesley at this point. And Wesley with his brother Charles were very interesting in their response to the Lisbon earthquake and a number of problems that London was experiencing around that time of earthquakes and disease. And one of the things that Wesley and his brother Charles in a series not just of sermons but of hymns explored was that as we live in this in-between creation and new creation, we need to recognize not that we're about triumphing over nature, but that we need a humility or vulnerability or recognise our vulnerability towards nature, while at the same time that our hope is based in God's transforming work through medicine, through science, to a point where we long for that which is to come. And of course, this is where I think the Christian church has a great deal to offer to our culture at the moment the sense of lament at the situation that we're in at the moment, the realism about confronting our mortality, that we're not in control of everything, that actually death is a serious issue, that the modern world doesn't save us from everything. I think also an affirmation that the world is not completely evil, the physical creation, and therefore the image of transformation, which isn't an image of concrete, It's an image of taking that which is good and making it better and healing those things that are broken or fractured within our creation. Those are the images that I think can redeem some of the narratives.
0: David, you've spoken about the new possibilities, the new parts of that narrative that might be constructed. Can I ask how you, as a theologian and a scientist, are walking in faith in this season? You've spoken about humility, vulnerability, the capacity for realism, but also the hope in that key word transformation. How is that, if I can ask, affecting your prayers and worship in this season?
1: I mean, I think at one level, whenever I feel under pressure or anxious or in crisis, then I need to do the simple things well. So I need to read my Bible. I need to say my prayers. I need to join with others in worship, even if that's virtual worship. And I need to try and articulate my Christian faith to others. Those are the kind of basic foundations of the Christian life. But within that, I think one or two things have grown in importance for me in all of this. The first is simply experiencing more of the natural world. Now, to be honest, Philip, I'm an astronomer-astrophysicist. So my main interest in the natural world, been stars. But I found myself just being able to sit in the garden and to have joy in the sense of the natural world, in seasons, in plants, flowers, birds, animals, insects, in a way that I'd not seen before. And I think that's been both a joy and a discipline to not spend the whole of the day in front of Netflix but actually experience the natural world in a way that affirms its beauty and its goodness. Now, for other people, that may be watching David Attenborough or Brian Cox on Netflix, or it may be looking up at the night sky if you can get away from all of this street lighting. But we live in the middle of Newcastle, and the street lighting means you can't see the sky very much. I don't think it was an essential journey to drive out to the middle of Kielder Forest in order to look at the night sky. So I want to enjoy the natural world where it is. I think that's the first thing. I think the second practical thing is I need to be cautious about 24-hour news. Now, that may seem an odd thing to say, but it goes back to your first question about the interaction of advice from scientists and pronouncements of politicians and endless statistics and figures means that you can be distracted from new story to new story and actually become very anxious about what science is saying, what the correct advice is. And so I limit myself to maybe once or twice a day, simply sitting down and reading some of the information on it rather than having it appear on my computer screen or phone all of the time. Now, it seems an odd thing to say, but I think it's partly uh, trying to sift the scientific advice away from headlines and understand that over the course of time, there begins to build up a picture. So just as I don't take a sense of immediately jumping to conclusions on the daily death figures that the government have been announcing, they are horrendous and it causes me to pray as I hear them. But when they seem to be slightly lower than the previous day or slightly higher than the other day, I just need to take time, and as the government have got to, talk about a seven-day average of it so you see the trends. I think in terms of scientific advice, it's a bit like that. We can jump from one research finding to another, but I think we just have to take our time. And then the third thing is that I just think that there's something here in going back to some of the theological issues that we've talked about. This is why I think Talking Theology is such an important podcast, in that there are many people putting lots of stuff out on the web at the moment. Lots of clergy are providing daily devotions, and they're all very helpful and all very pleasant. But in a sense, really trying to get to grips with some of the deeper theological questions. And there are many which remain really difficult for me. And I want to try and grapple with them, even if I don't get an answer. So I still grapple, and I've grappled with this even before the COVID outbreak, of the reality and cause and scale of suffering within our world. I don't have any easy answers to that. But I do want to recognize this question and talk with other Christians about it. I do want to keep asking myself, when I hear voices in the media talk about these narratives, I want to keep going back and say, is this a biblical narrative or not? So those are some of the things that have helped me in all of this.
0: Well, David, you've given us lots to think about and lots of theological questions to ponder. It's also an invitation to pray in the midst of that. And we just want to say thank you very much for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmer Hall, Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmerhall.com.